Hello, Kobo and Conversation listeners. I'm Nathan Maharaj, producer and occasional host of the show, and I'm here to tell you about something special about the next few episodes. Every year as fall rolls around, Toronto's Harbourfront Centre hosts authors from around the world at the Toronto International Festival of Authors. Michael Tamblin and I had the pleasure of participating in several events, interviewing authors about their books, and were able to share recordings of those conversations with you now. First up, Michael interviews Marion Keyes about the unexpected sequel to her breakout bestseller from the 90s, Rachel's Holiday. So here is the delightful Marion Keyes in conversation with Michael Tamblin at the Toronto International Festival of Authors. Welcome everyone to my favorite part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors, where we get to talk about the books that people actually finish reading. (laughs) (laughs) So just by quick show of hands before we get going, how many people are going to multiple events through the festival uh, tonight and seeing multiple authors by show of hands? That's great. How yeah, many people? Yeah, a very well-read city. How many people are here specifically to see and hear Marion Keats? Oh my God! Okay. You're so, so lovely. I, isn't it nice? Yeah. Can I just say hello? <laughs> Thank so, you so much for coming here this evening. And especially because it's a day off and you should be all down the country or out at the lakes and stuff. And you came here instead. I'm so grateful. Sorry, Michael. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at all of them who were the screaming ones for the questions at the end. They're, uh, okay. Uh, by the way, is there, is there a specific name for Marion Keys fans? Marionettes. Somebody, no, that wasn't really? my, yeah, somebody on, um, somebody on Twitter made it up, which... Um, I pretended to be embarrassed by, but I'm obviously delighted. But it's kind of fantastic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? (laughs) That's good, because I thought they might be uh, Keysians, which is not not nearly as good. That sounds like, yeah, that sounds like an economist, doesn't it? Yeah. So that we get everyone properly in the mood, Marion, could I ask you to give us a bit of a reading from again, Rachel? Yes, now this is very, very short. Don't worry. Um, No, settle in, get popcorn, this go on for hours. Yeah, I've been at things where like people have done like half an hour readings and I'm, you know, you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm in hell. I'm in hell and I am trapped in here forever listening to this man read about the trees. Anyway, um, okay, so this is chapter two from Again, Rachel. And just to bring you up to date, Rachel uh, has a boyfriend called Quinn and this is how she met him. When people ask how I met Quinn, then notice my hesitation. They usually say, Tinder, hey, no shame in that. But it was worse than Tinder. Almost two years ago, in 2016, Quinn and I had met at a meditation retreat, a silent one, held in a big old house in the middle of nowhere. I'd gone because I was a failed meditator. In all my years of trying, Despite the hundreds of candle flames I'd stared into, I'd never been able to stop my thoughts. 
15 minutes really isn't that long. I just need to empty my mind, empty, 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 thinking of absolutely nothing. Hey, look, I'm actually meditating. Except if I notice that I'm doing it, does that mean that I'm actually not? God, I never cancelled that appointment with the physio. I'll do it now. Well, not now, now, but as soon as I finish my meditation. By 7 o'clock on that Friday evening in late March, about 30 of us were sitting cross-legged on yoga mats, slyly trying to check each other out without getting caught. We were just this mass of nervous, hopeless, hopeful people, more, more women than men, always the way, ranging in age from 20s to 60s. I'd have loved to know everyone's reason for attending, but we were literally forbidden from speaking. Also banned were alcohol, coffee, phones, electronics, books and magazines. Our instructors were a kind and deliciously lithe young woman, yoga, of course, and three well-meaning young men, all a bit lentily, rough brown clothing, pale faces with sparse, whispery beards, then their hairlines already in retreat. Over the 48 hours, we did oodles of group meditation, during which I spent a shameful amount of time wondering if all three of the lentil boys were in love with yoga girl. They'd have to be, surely. She was so nice. And of course, there was the litheness. When my mind should have been stilling, I was inspecting the unkempt trio and wondering if she ever slept with any of them, or indeed all of them. She was absolutely beautiful. But one thing I've learned is never to underestimate the confidence of the most unremarkable of men. As well as meditating, we did a few yoga classes, ate vegan food at regular intervals, and swilled down as much sage tea as we could stomach. A large part of Saturday afternoon was spent eating a single raisin. About half an hour in, I realized it was maybe the 20th time I'd done such a thing. Every course on mindfulness and meditation wheeled it out to demonstrate how to slow down and live in the moment. I sighed quietly. Maybe it was time to throw in the towel for good on this meditation thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. God, you're so nice. Thanks a million. So just to pull back a little bit, um, where at the end of Rachel's holiday, where did we see her? You know, where was she at the end of that book? Okay, at the end of Rachel's holiday, she was clean, um, about a year and a half, and Luke Costello, uh, which he was her very delicious boyfriend, and it was on, and then it was very, very much off. It's on again. We're in business. Everything is good at the end of Rachel's holiday, because that's kind of what I do. You know, I'm, how would you call it? I am dysfunctionally attached to happy endings, and I insist upon them. So yes, everything is fantastic at the end. Excellent. I think everybody here is with you. I don't think there's any, uh, there's no buyer's remorse around, uh, around that. And so we re-encounter Rachel now. How many years has it been? It's 20. And where do we find her and what is she up to? Okay. Well, in many ways, things are still good. I think we can take a lot of positives from the situation. Um, Rachel is living in Ireland now, and she is working as a counsellor in the same facility 
where she got cleaned, the cloisters, all those years ago. Um, in other lovely news, she has a very excellent boyfriend. His name is Quinn. Um, he is interesting. Um, one of those people who has a very short attention span. It can be fun, kind of exhausting. But anyway, it's working for her. <laughs> in other lovely news, all the, the, the Walsh sisters are there. Mammy Walsh is very much alive. Daddy Walsh also alive, but very, very quiet. In less lovely news, she married Luke Costello, but they divorced six years ago. Um, at the beginning of the novel, you don't know why, but we are encouraged to hate him. Um, and, but, but like, as the, the novel goes on, you know, there are many, many truths in any situation, and Rachel is only presenting one version of it. And, the, and then, it, you know, tragedy strikes. Or does it, Michael? Or does <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> no, I'm awful. This is and dreadful. It, yes, it does strike. It does, because Luke's mother dies. And, um, and Luke is now living in Denver and horse rides for a hobby. And he comes to Ireland for his mother's funeral. And in Ireland, whenever, if you ever made eye contact with the person crossing the road 40 years ago, you are still obliged to go to their funeral. You have to, like, it's a thing, you know, it is, you, I, I, there are Irish people here tonight, obviously, yes, like, it's a thing, isn't it, like, you know, like, like, my husband is English, and they're very different about it, you know, like, about three and a half people turned up to the funeral of the most well-loved people, whereas the most insignificant, really quite unpleasant people in Ireland will get turnouts of thousands, you know, like acres and acres of ham sandwiches are brought in, like to deal with. So anyway, it's regarded as kind of, she was once Rachel's mother-in-law. So, you know, it's perfectly legitimate for Rachel to go to Luke's mother's funeral. And they, their paths cross, sort of. You know yourself. <laughs> and by extension, we're all now obligated to come to each other's funerals, having yeah. spent time in this room together. And she isn't completely free of habits. She, you know, she has one compulsion that she's still working on right now. Yeah, it's the trainers. Yeah, she buys a huge amount of them. Or she does that thing that I do, which is I, like, I order seven pairs, allegedly in different sizes, you know, but like really just different ones, and, and kind of own them for 30 minutes, and then send them back. I mean, my DHL man, Steve, I am godmother to his four <laughs> eldest children. Like, we know each other inside out. And then there's all the kind of the subsidiary ones as well. There's the FedEx one, there's the, um, the DPD one, there's the ordinary postman who I love like a brother. Um, yeah, I am, I am very fond of online, uh, online shopping. So Rachel and I have that in common. I think those delivery people get to know a lot about you too. Like they, they, they learn. Yes. They have a window into oh your life God, that no one else shaming. has. Oh my God, Yeah, it really, really is. And you know, you do well to befriend them because you know, when, when the trials happen, um, they, they can speak in favor of you. And yes. say, she sent most of them back, Your Honor. Um, no, and, and my understanding is, coming back to death, that when you die, and you go to the pearly gates, like one of the people that testifies on your behalf is actually the delivery person who's been delivering oh stuff Oh my God, here. that's and absolutely you know, beautiful. I think so. Yes. <laughs> that, that 
that's really, really nice. I mean, I do worry. You know, I mean, I genuinely worry about, you know, the shopping and everything. And I do sort of feel that when Gen Z do the revolution, that there will be sort of trials where the likes of me and my credit card stuff would be read out and all the things that... If, even though I send most of them back, you know, I'll be in the dock with my purchases. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm innocent, really. You've spoken about Rachel's holiday as a way to explore some of the pressures and stresses that push us around in our 20s. So what's driving... Rachel now, in again, Rachel, 20-odd years later. I mean, this is the thing. When I was 19, I thought when you were 45, you were A, dead, and B, <laughs> that nothing would bother you. You know, that you would be just kind of, you'd be so wise, and you'd have lived so much, and also, you'd be so irrelevant that feelings wouldn't even bother happening to you. And it just, it was such a realisation to discover that, like, like Rachel's 47 now, that she still has in many ways the exact same feelings she's always had. Um, and that in some ways life, feelings are easier to manage. But I've learned that like anything I have ever felt, you know, any kind of loss or hurt or sorrow, I've got over it, but it stayed on file. And so something can happen. You know, if somebody is rude to me or if I get ignored in a shop, which happens a lot, because um, I'm short, I think it's because I don't come up far enough on the counter. Anyway, you know, it's something like that. Or if I get caught, caught up in traffic, it can, it can trigger an old wound. You know, it can remind me of how I felt when I was seven or 11 or 15. So Rachel has all of those feelings still available. The last time you and I talked, it was in 2020, um, on the Cobone Conversation podcast yeah. about your previous book, Grown Ups. And Grown Ups spoke in many ways to the difficulty of feeling grown up in a, in a state of what you called kid adulthood. Rachel doesn't seem to have that problem. She's, I would say she is a grown up. She's, you know, she's seen some things, she's experienced some things, she's survived them. How did it feel in returning to Rachel after she'd made such a transition over the decades into a new phase of her life? I think at the moment, like Rachel's life is fairly steady. You know, everything, she's very much in her lane. Like, she's clean, and she's got a good job, and she's got a lovely dog, and she's got a lovely boyfriend. See the order I put these in? Yeah, and, um, you know, and she has enough money, and she's steady. You know, she's close to her family, and kind of nothing is there to unsettle her. But I think in any life, we only have small amounts of steadiness, really. I, I really feel like we're in constant flux, and that things can kind of come along and, like, unsettle us with no warning whatsoever. Like, the only, what did it say, the only constant is change. So when we meet Rachel, she's in a good place. But she didn't tell us the real story about what happened with Luke. There's a whole load of undealt with stuff, and it all starts unraveling at, at the funeral. Well, not actually at the funeral. She behaves herself at the funeral. Um, but shortly afterwards, it all goes a bit sideways. I mean, I just feel like that about life in general. It doesn't really matter what our age is. We never really outgrow 
uncertainty or doubt or, or you know, the capacity for delight or joy or falling in love. Like, I mean, I fall in love all the time, like with people and with families and with, you know, books and, you know, and I like that that's, that's part of being human, that we don't out, out, outgrow that either. As a writer, you progressed as well. You said that you thought that your last book, Grown Ups, was kind of a turning point in your craft as a, as a writer. Are, are there still things you're actively working on? Are there things that you're trying to get better at? Are there always. places you're trying to push yourself? Oh my God, always, always, always. Yeah, and I feel so grateful and thank you that I've been published for long enough to improve. You know, like in the beginning, I was very black and white about men. Like they were either love rats or delicious, you know? And there was sort of no room in between. <clears throat> and as I've got older, I've had this kind of staggering realization that men are people too, you know? And, and I think grown-ups for me was like, four of the main characters are men. And they're all different and they have, and they're just nuanced in the same ways that my female characters have been. So I'm hoping to kind of get better at that. And I suppose the structure of grown-ups was ambitious as well, like coming at it kind of, you know, to have seven narrative strands. Um, there's, structurally, I'm always trying to improve, but also on a sentence by sentence. I mean, I have that horrendous Irish thing, and Irish people here will agree, you know, that like, why use one word when 4,000 will do? And, you know, I love words and I love generosity with them, you know, I'm flinging them around. But I've realised less can be more at times. You know, you can tell the story just as efficiently with fewer words. Um, you know, my books would be half the size if I'd just shut up, you know, if I'd <laughs> calm it down a bit. I don't think you get many takers for that idea here. You're so I, nice. But if you put those two books side by side, Rachel's Holiday and again Rachel, where do you see the changes in yourself as an author? Because there is kind of this snapshot that you get to do. Oh my God, now that's a question. Um, it, it's more the similarities I see mm -hmm. rather than, than, I think maybe on a sentence level, the sentences, and again, Rachel, are just... There's less self-indulgence, there's less whimsy, I suppose, and again, Rachel. But her voice, I think, is the same, and the family. I suppose family is so important to me in real life and, and in my books. And it felt like a real pleasure to be able to revisit all the Walshes. Um, it was so nice. I started writing again, Rachel, in March 2020, about a week before the world ended. And, uh, and it was the strangest thing because I live really close to my mother and two of my brothers. Um, I'm like I'm walking distance from about 60 nieces and nephews. And suddenly we couldn't see each other. Like I had to stand at my mother's gate and yell, I love you. And she'd shout, we're Irish, we don't say things like that. <laughs> but it's the pandemic, you might die. How dare you? You might die. <laughs> you know, but like, you know, we couldn't, like, we're not huggers. My mother is very kind of like, you know, way, we don't do this. But like, suddenly being kind of distanced, the Walshes became my family. Like, it was a real gift 
to be able to write about the watches. So, uh, to be honest, I'd see more the similarity. Well, I suppose, okay, maybe one thing. Again, my male characters are more nuanced. In that, like, at the end of Rachel's Holiday, like, Luke is just this, that kind of this delicious, perfect man. And there isn't any room for him to be anything else because we've got the happy ending. There isn't any, any story to find out his limitations. And I suppose, and again, Rachel, I was able to explore the fact that he's only human, but still have him completely lovable. That, that would be a difference, I suppose. So you started writing this book, as you say, you know, early 2020. So this, you know, I made a sourdough starter, but you, you, know, <laughs> you, you went for this book. Um, so it was kind of like your literary pandemic baby. Yeah. Um, that was a time that was, that was scary and uncertain. We were being kept away from our friends and family. Was there comfort in coming back to this family that you knew? Oh, hugely. I mean, it was such... I mean, do you remember those first six weeks? It's like, we're all in it together, yes! We so can many do lentils, this. so many lentils. Yes, yeah. and uh, yeah, and then quickly, oh my God. It's like, seriously, another six weeks? Oh, hold on now, this is open-ended. Yeah, and like, there were many. It was a time of texture. You know, we didn't have, to, well, I didn't have the same feelings. I had times of like real flat on my back, staring at the ceiling, lifeless depression. And then times when I was like, oh God, this is lovely. I don't have to talk to anyone. I could read, this is nice, this is lovely. And then, no, no, this is scary. And then I am actually very introverted. People don't believe me, but I can only do, because I talk a lot, but like I run out after an hour and then I have to go off in an ambulance and be put in a drip <laughs> for a month. Um, and suddenly I was craving parties. Now, like normally that would be my idea of hell, you know, like to be, to be in a room with people where you have to discuss, you know, talk about how you got there, like and have that same conversation over and over and over, like 70 times, like that is, and then as people get drunker, I get more and more bored, oh my God, I was craving it, I wanted to wear high platform glittery sandals and like a short dress and back comb my hair and have lashes and just dance for 20 hours. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I had all of those feelings. So yeah, the watches were a great comfort when I couldn't do any of those things. And the last time we, we talked, we were, we were saying, this thing's going to be over soon. Mm. That was November of 2020. Um, and even then, you talked about feeling a bit institutionalized. Like, yeah. you weren't sure how you were going to reemerge into the world. And so fast forward to today, and... A lot of us are emerging, have emerged, are about to emerge from the pandemic, returning to things like live book festivals, shocking, um, and kind of relearning the world. But we're carrying different things with us. We're kind of different people. Is post-pandemic Marion different than pre-pandemic Marion? Oh, absolutely. I think in a way, we're all keen to underestimate the effect of it. But it was like, and forgive me, I don't mean to diminish living through a war. But in many ways, it was that wartime mentality. I know that, you know, bombs weren't raining down on us, but death was everywhere. It was invisible, and a hug could kill you, theoretically. And I think, definitely for me, it, it has made me more grateful. Um, 
it's also made me more cautious. It, it, yeah, it has made me far more aware of the people I love. And just, I mean, the absolute delight of a hug. Um, and, you know, and being able to travel. Or, you know, just to go to people's houses. But I think it's, it's definitely been a... It's... I'm not... I'm sorry. A, a combination of things. I am post-COVID. I am jet-lagged. And I am, the other thing, menopausal. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect storm. Things aren't really going on. Um, yeah, it's definitely changed me. I don't think anyone can go through anything frightening or traumatic and emerge exactly the same. Um, and I think we're trying to pretend that we're exactly the same. We're not. And we're allowed to say, God, that was awful. That was awful, and I really hope we don't go through it again. But, on the, you know, and then to be grateful that people, you know, are still... Can I tell you about my mother? Um, my mother was 90 in March. Um, she, is, she is the size of this, okay? Um, and through the pandemic, she lived on her own, because my dad died four years ago. She... Now, this is awful. This is really bad. Didn't have Wi-Fi. I know, it's dreadful. She, yeah. Didn't have Netflix, you know, it was awful. And, uh, and then she got a cataract on her eye, so she couldn't read. And like, she got through that time by being relentlessly cheerful. Um, the only thing she had was mass was on telly every day, I know. And um, like, I used to be very kind of, oh, about it. But then I thought, no, fair play. It's keeping her alive, you know? Um, and you should see her now. She's never at home. She's discovered brunch. She is like, as a concept, she's just delighted with it. She has also discovered gin and tonic in a can. And, you know, it's like, she is the most, you've never seen anyone who so deserves their life. They are, she is living every second of it. She, you know, Tomas, her youngest grandchild, you know, she is, God love her, riddled with arthritis, except miraculously whenever Tomas is around, she's suddenly, she's able for football and she's diving and, you know, it's just really lovely. So the pandemic made her, like, full of zest and glee and zeal and all of those E words. Could we hear it for Mrs. Keyes in the pandemic? Yes, for Mammy Keyes. <laughs> She'd be thrilled. No, she'd be absolutely thrilled. Now you, now you can let her know that she's received applause. I will. Her. And okay. like, I mean, as far as she's concerned, it's no more than she deserves. You know, like, I mean, basically, I'm sitting here because of her. You know? Like, she could have written books and everything, but she was busy. Um, and it's true. Like, she actually could have. She's hilarious and really a great raconteur. Tell us a bit about how books start for you? Are you structure first, plot first, characters first? What's the, what's the first thing that ends up It's, a, it's always character. I mean, it's always, I mean, it's usually a woman. Um, and it's always contemporary. And I hadn't even realized that that was what I do. Um, I just thought I was saying words. Um, but I suppose I'm very interested in kind of exploring how the contemporary world affects our feelings, mostly. Like, I'm all... I write emotional landscapes. And so the plot is always down the list. I mean, I have a vague idea of subject matter. And then 
I mean, things happen, but it's slow. Like, I'm, I th I'm a very slow writer because I kind of have to feel my way along in the dark. I mean, other people know from the beginning. I have a friend, and she has a special software thing, and she knows exactly what's going to happen in every chapter before she writes the first word. And I'm, you know, I'm so in awe of her. But I suppose everyone has their own way of doing it, and that's its character always. For this character, you've said that for, for you, your sobriety is the, the cornerstone of your life, and that all good things for you have kind of proceeded from that. Now, Rachel isn't you, but does she represent something special to you across all of those characters that you've written in representing that experience? Yes, thank you, Michael, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you don't often read about people in long-term recovery. You know, because we've seen the movies and we've read the books, and basically, it, you know, it's binary. At the end, the, peop the person either gets clean or sober, or they die. You know, you're not given any other option, really. And I, I mean, because I'm in long-term sobriety, and like, I have a really lovely life, but there are small adjustments that I have to make to my life that people generally don't tend to. And I just thought it would be interesting to write about it, the way that you can have a really lovely life and not drink, in my case, or not whatever. Um, but to also acknowledge that it's not, I don't want to use the word normal, but there is a certain amount of attention that has to be paid. Like, I am careful. And I can do almost everything. You know, I can go to those parties and wear the sparkly platforms and everything. But after I am told the same story for the fourth time, I realize this is no longer a place for me and I have to withdraw. And like, that doesn't feel like a hardship. I mean, it's, I was gonna say the price I pay for the beautiful life I have, but it's, it's the bargain that I make. And the same with Rachel. She has particular bargains that she has to make. And I just thought it would be interesting, you know, maybe not to everyone, but I suppose I wanted to show that it's possible to be functional and happy and, and to have other addictions like the shoes and, you know, <laughs> which is sort of manageable, that it doesn't all have to be, you know, lemmings over a cliff, drama. And, and she is a representative of kind of the lifelong nature of recovery. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, she's, she's still on the phone with her sponsor. She's still yeah. doing the work 20 years later. Like it, oh, yeah, it, it never doesn't stops. Stop. No. Um, no, it doesn't stop. And that, again, if people who don't know about it say, just, you're still going to their marital meetings, but you haven't drunk in so long. Why do you still keep going? But, like, I keep going so that I don't. You know, and like, if people aren't exposed to it, why would they, how would they know? Um, but yeah, it is ongoing, and that's fine. Coming back to a character you already know is, a, is an interesting task for a writer. You could have picked up her story a week later, or five years later, or more, so why this amount of time? 
because you see, I don't hold with sequels, um, says the woman who wrote one. But it's just, I, with any of my books, any of you who've read them will know that like, my characters go through plenty. And at the end, I think, God, love them. Leave them alone. Let them fly free and be happy. Um, and the idea of a sequel, you know, you have to go in and break up the happy ending. It is just not, you can't pick up the happy ending and continue with another book of entire loveliness. You know, like. Are you sure? I know. Let, let me prove it to you. Okay. okay. Say you haven't met. There's somebody I don't know. You were at school with, and you haven't met her for a while, and you meet for a couple of drinks, and you ask her how she is, and she goes, "I'm amazing. I'm just so amazing. My children, three of them, they're all so beautiful." And she holds up pictures of them. See, they like. She's a model. I've got this little buddy on ads and TV. See, see, see. This one's a certified genius. You know. My husband, oh my God, see him, he's so hot. We have sex day and <laughs> night. God almighty. My job, yeah, I've just been promoted. They gave me a free car, can you believe it? And in the beginning, you're going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, lovely, 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 lovely. Yeah, lovely, f*** you, yeah. <laughs> and you see, that's how it is. You know, you can only take so much of another person's loveliness. And it's the same with the book. You need texture. You know, with your lovely friend, if she said, yeah, but um, I've arthritis in four of my knees. Or, do you know, like, or, yeah, eight of my teeth fell out last night. It was the weirdest thing. You need texture. You need a bit of balance. People can have lovely lives if they offer up something sad. You know, they're like, I look at, I don't make the rules. That's just how it is. So the same with the novel. I mean, I could start with Rachel and Luke and everything is lovely. And like a quarter of the way in, you're thinking, Jesus Christ, is something going to happen? You know, things must happen. And they, can, they have to be bad. I'm sorry, again, I don't make the rules. <laughs> and, and we have some... You know, some things show up in the book that simply weren't present in 1996. You know, Tinder's in there. Swingers are in there. It's like yeah. the modern world has come to Ireland. It's, it's really quite <laughs> Oh, shocking. we always yes. had swingers, actually, Michael. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think. I don't know. We probably didn't, actually. <laughs> Did we, Irish people? Yeah. <laughs> Someone help us. Stay quiet. Yeah, yeah okay. gotcha. Right. Yeah. Sorry, the modern no, world. Yes. No, I've, I've lost the <laughs> Sorry. thread. Um, okay. You are a huge booster of literature written by women. I'm a bookseller who loves hearing book recommendations, and we have a whole audience of, of book buyers and readers here. Who are some authors that you love that we should be checking out right now? Oh, my God, I love so many. Okay, I'll tell you what I've read recently. There's a writer called Catherine Newman, and she has written a book called We All Want Impossible Things. It's going to be published in January. She's American. It's, it's a sort of a fictionalized memoir. It's, I mean, this sounds really sad. It's a cancer. Her, her best friend is dying of cancer. But it is so warm and so beautiful and genuinely funny and sad but not mawkish. Um, okay. The new Barbara Kingsolver, oh my God. It's called Demon Copperhead, and it's a retelling of David Copperfield, and it's set in <coughs> Appalachia. I know that's a huge generalization, but it, it is, like it's various states are in it, and it's, it's just, it's this shocking indictment of like the state of the US, 
but she writes like she inhabits the voice so beautifully. Uh, the new Graham Norton is a scream. It's honest to God, it's, it's, it's a black comedy. It's, oh yeah, that's not, he's not a woman, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of, <laughs> books I've read and loved. Um, I'm, I'm sure he's not gonna turn down yeah, the plug now. No. He's a <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a load of great novels out there. There's a writer called Liz Nugent. She writes almost horror. It's crime bordering on horror. Oh my God, right. There's a writer called Jane Casey. She writes police procedurals. And they're about nine in the series, Maeve Kerrigan and Josh Dermond. And over the books, there has been a relationship between two of the polices. I am begging you, start at the beginning and read them all. The new, I got sent the new proof recently and I almost ate it. You know, like, <laughs> I was like shoving pieces of paper in my mouth. I wanted it so much. Um, there's a book called The Skeleton Key by Aaron Kelly, which is out now. And have any of you read Barbara Vine? Oh my God, right, okay. Well, first of all, you have to read Barbara Vine. Um, she, she was Ruth Rendell, but she wrote slightly different books as Barbara Vine, but mm -hmm. The Skeleton Key is very Barbara Vine, like it's set in Hampstead and it starts in the 60s and it's just, it's a real escape. Um, and you, you also recently called out a Toronto author, um, Monica Heisey. <gasps> yes, yes, oh my God, her book is out in January. It's called Really Good, actually. Um, I loved it so much and it's so weird being here because I want to say to everyone, do you know Monica? Because I'm doing that thing that, you know when people meet Irish people and they met an Irish person once and they expect everyone to know each other. Yeah, but I do feel, do you well, know Monica? The, it's do you know Monica? It's because of the funerals, that's how you know each other. Um, yeah. <laughs> At the funerals, of course, right. yeah. Well, uh, Monica is also a, uh, a screenwriter for Schitt's Creek. So if you are a Schitt's Creek fan, this is a, yes. ah, I see the sound. Yeah. Um, the, um, and you, you get some of that from, uh, from oh, her there. So yeah. good. You do not believe in guilty pleasures as far as reading goes. Oh my God, I don't believe in guilty pleasures full stop. I mean, unless you're having sex with a sheep. I mean, <laughs> if you're enjoying it, if it is a pleasure, you should feel guilty about it. But in general, God almighty, life is hard. Why would anyone feel guilty about, I don't know, reading a book with a pink cover or, you know, and like it's, that whole thing is kind of founded in sort of intellectual insecurity. It's like people aren't, they're not confident of their own judgment and they're always afraid of other people judging them. You know, I think if you like it, that's enough. You don't have to apologize. And there's horses for courses. And, and also you can like, you know, Brahms, you can like Bach, you can like George Michael. Do you know what I mean? And you can, it doesn't make you any lesser or better. Like what you like. Be who you are. Thank you everyone for a Thank wonderful you. night. Michael referred to an earlier conversation he had with Marion, so I've put a link to that episode from 2020 in the show notes for you. Check it out. We'll be back soon with more from Tifa. 
This episode contains audio from the Toronto International Festival of Authors and was produced by me, Nathan Maharaj. Thank you for listening. Thank you.